This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, come and heal your broken church. We pray that you would make us truly your community, the one that lives by your story. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing our sermon series in the latter chapters of Ephesians. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when I began this series that this text is not simply another letter that Paul has written to the church at Ephesus, but it's probably an actual sermon that he wrote that was designed to be preached to all the various house churches in Asia. And in this series, we're coming in to the sermon at what we might call St. Paul's application section. The first chapters have documented the glorious reality of Christ's victory over the powers and principalities from the destructive power of sin and death and his rescue of the church from slavery to those powers. This glorious reality. And then in chapter 4, he turns and he says, Therefore, because all of this is true, because this is your foundational narrative, Here is how you must live. Here is what it means to be the community that lives according to the dignity and the identity and the riches and the gifts that have been bestowed upon it. Mother Tish told us last week that if we come in midstream here into chapters 4 and 5 and we don't read what goes before, we might think that Ephesians is St. Paul's version of life's little instruction book or Poor Richard's Almanac, a list of moral suggestions and life hacks and strategies to make us healthy and wealthy and worldly wise. But that is emphatically not what Paul is up to here. This is what he is doing. He's telling the church that there is news that has fundamentally changed reality itself, and that this news must make a difference in what we think our lives are about, and therefore, in what we are doing with our time. The great novelist Walker Percy once wrote that there is all the world of difference between mere information and news. News is information, but it's information that is addressed to someone that finds him or herself in a predicament. Percy writes that news is precisely that communication which has bearing on his predicament and is therefore good or bad news. The news might actually even create the predicament itself by changing one's perception of the reality that one believes oneself is in. In other words, news makes us understand that the world isn't what we thought it was. News comes and the ground shifts beneath your feet and reality suddenly appears different because it is different than what you thought. And that's why when we talk about something that really is news to us and not just information, we use evocative and vehement language to describe it. We talk about bad news coming and exploding like a landmine beneath us. We talk about being ripped apart and cut into pieces and being doubled over in pain because of bad news that we've received. And likewise, if good news is really news and not just information, we respond with acknowledgement of the cosmos-altering nature of that news. We talk about feeling lucky or blessed, or in some other way we express that someone or something has addressed us and changed our location in the cosmos. 
And the crucial point of all of this, Percy points out, is that news is always delivered to be heeded and acted upon. That's what Paul is saying here. In Christ, the ground has shifted beneath our feet. We have been delivered from the power of the enemy. We have been delivered from the power of our own sin. Christ and what he has done for us reveals that violence and depravity are not the deepest things, the most lasting things. It is the ravishing love of the Father for his creation that is the deepest thing, that is the most lasting thing. And because of that love, he has made us his own children in Christ. In Christ, we have been made brothers and sisters to one another. We have been given a Father in heaven who cares for us and who has given us an inheritance. What we must not do then, St. Paul tells us, is to go on acting like these things have never happened. That these things are not true somehow. If we believe in God, if we fear him, and by the way, that term does not mean terror, it means full allegiance pledged to the Father. If we believe in God, if we fear him, then the church must be the assembly, the social space where this news is heeded and acted upon. That is how St. Paul talks about the church. That's how he anticipates the church will be. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, he says in Ephesians 1 verse 23. Now, evangelicals like myself are not accustomed to putting very much weight on the church itself. We tend to see our personal relationships with Christ as the most fundamental thing, and the church as an important but optional add-on. But as John Stott says in his commentary on Ephesians, if we are to be Bible-believing Christians, our view of the church has to be at least as high as St. Paul's is. For St. Paul... The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It is the church, the gathered and the assembled social body of Christ, the visible body of Christ, and not the individual believer alone, which is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And hear this. The church is not simply an amorphous, invisible collection of all the individuals who worship Christ. St. Paul doesn't give us that option. Rather, it is the church envisioned as a physical and social organism, an actual living institution, the church with its officers, the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers given to build the body of Christ into maturity so that we all reach unity and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is what I was preaching on just a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Ephesians chapter 4. That's the church for Paul. It's visible. It is tactile. You can put your hands on it. You can see it. You can touch it. This is the only vessel that Christ has chosen to bear witness to him in this world. Thomas Merton once put it this way. He said, into this world, this demented inn, in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. And he makes a space for himself In the church, he has chosen his church, the fullness of him who dwells, who fills all things to be the space where Christ is welcomed and where his presence and his healing kingship can be known by us and where it can be known by others. And the way in which this happens is through the distinctiveness of our common life together. So the distinctiveness of the church's common life really has to be distinctive. 
The first task of the church, Stanley Hauerwas has said, is to make the church the church and not the world. The church has different standards than the prevailing culture because we have a different story. And if we don't have a different story, if we don't have different standards, then Christ's glory, His majesty, and His splendor are going to be obscured. And woe to us! Woe to us if we fail to proclaim Christ in our speech and in our lives and the distinctiveness of our common life together. That's the whole reason we've been put upon this earth this morning. If you don't know that, that's your purpose. To magnify Jesus Christ in the assembly of God, the church. And we are each given the dignity and the status to contribute to that common life, to build it up in various ways until we all reach the measure and the stature of Christ. That's the message of Ephesians. Now, I believe all of this is true. I believe all of this is true. And I cling to it with all of my might. It is my only hope. It is the only word which I have to proclaim to you and which I will ever have to proclaim to you. And yet today I'm, I'm here in this unenviable position of having to proclaim that word to you in the aftermath of the revelation of unspeakable horrors and atrocities committed by priests and covered up by bishops in the Roman Catholic Church right here in Pennsylvania. You know, I have read, I have sat with this grand jury report, this nearly 900 page report this past week. And there is only relenting darkness in this report. What is reported there is demented, depraved, and demonic. The abuse of over a thousand victims by over 300 corrupt clergy that happened over the course of 70 years. The depths of the perversion and the corruption reported there cannot adequately be communicated. The beggar's belief, it staggers the imagination. And the worst of what is reported happened right here in Pittsburgh. Over 90 priests are named as offenders in this report from this diocese alone. These names were drawn from the Catholic Church's records themselves. And the so-called shepherds, the bishops of the six dioceses named in this report compounded this problem so profoundly by the creation of a so-called circle of secrecy. It's a phrase that the report says was coined by the former bishop of Pittsburgh, Donald Worrell. The scholar Alan Jacobs says that the bishops did so much to cover this up and to compound this problem that they could not have done more if they themselves desired above all the destruction of lives. Every diocese maintained a secret archive where abuses were simultaneously, meticulously documented and hidden from public view rather than freely and transparently communicated to law enforcement, to victims' families, and the churches where the offending priests were serving. All of this secrecy and wickedness transpired over such a long period of time and with such willful intention to, quote, avoid scandal which really means to protect the reputation of the church above all things, rather than the victims of these horrible crimes. And I have to reluctantly say the Catholic Church as a Christian body has not only thrown away its credibility, but it has besmirched the name of Jesus Christ. It has so closely associated the narrative and the splendor of faith with its demonic opposite that it has made it nigh unto impossible for entire generations to believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, has liberated us from sin and death. 
I am not going to mince words this morning. I can only conclude that the men who have done this do not believe in God or they do not fear God. These men have been filled with the spirit of Antichrist using the symbols and the language of faith and benefiting from their communication of it when they do not believe a word of it. I'm speaking in the strongest possible condemnatory language here because that's what Christ does. Christ loves every one of the victims that has been abused. The one who welcomed children and blessed them also says in Matthew 18 that if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. To act as a representative of Christ and to engage in activity so demonic that one of Christ's lambs can no longer see who Christ is, what his character is, because of you is the most egregious and catastrophic thing one can do. We should not think that sexual abuse is a particularly Roman Catholic problem. Let's not forget the string of prominent evangelical leaders who have been taken down because of sexual sins. No, not pedophilia, not pederasty, but precisely sexual sin. Most recently, Bill Hybels. But let's not forget Tolly and Tavigian, Ted Hager, Jim Baker, and Jimmy Swagger. On down the line. As Matthew Hosier, a British evangelical, has recently written, it gets tiring having to apologize for this stuff. It gets tiring having an ever shorter list of contemporary authors that I can recommend. I am sorry this morning that the officers of the Church of Christ have done this. Never has the church's guidance been more crucial for our society, and never has the church lacked credibility to offer that guidance to such a degree and on such a scale. Christ himself warns, if the light inside you is darkness, then how great the darkness. We have no credibility to speak as a church because we have not been the community that St. Paul says we must be because of what Christ has done. Because the officers of the church have been wolves in sheep's clothing, the body has been torn apart. The church has not grown up into the measure and stature of Christ. So now I hope you see why it matters that we receive what Jesus Christ has done as news and not merely information. This has to be the bedrock truth that shifts the ground under our feet. This has to be the truth that we receive and act on. We don't merely passively consume it or even celebrate it only. We have to change our lives in light of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. Don't let what you see happening in the Roman Catholic Church and in various other places be the cause of self-righteousness. Do not say it couldn't happen here. Do not say, I'm not capable of that. I am a sinner. You all are sinners. We, are, we all are sinners. We are capable of this. Should we fail to put on Christ's righteousness, his character, and live by the Spirit, we will instead feed the sources of sin and death in ourselves and allow all manner of horrors and destructions to emerge from our hearts and find their way into actions and habits and dispositions. We need good policies, and good operating procedures. And I assure you, we have them here at Ascension. You can look into them. We will, show, we will show them to you. But policies and procedures are not silver bullets. What the church in every, every age needs is not better management, but holiness. 
holiness, not just management. The author Arthur Rosman says, there are no silver bullets against the werewolves of faithlessness. What St. Paul tells us in Ephesians is that that if we want to see and to experience the cosmic reality and the glory and the majesty of Christ and his church, it has to get personal. We cannot let it just be an abstraction. We have to train our attention on what is happening here, in this assembly, in this fellowship, and in each of our own hearts. Every one of us has to do battle with these seeds of devastation and destruction that are inside of us. It is so easy to justify them, to nurse them in secret ways in our hearts, to fail to see the connection between what's going on in here and what's happening out there. But if we don't kill these things, if we don't put them to death in our hearts, they emerge as the horrifying nightmare that is just unfolded before us. That is the consequence of refusing to mortify the sin that is in our own hearts. That is exactly what St. Paul is saying in our passage today. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It is incumbent upon us as disciples of Jesus Christ to regularly examine our own hearts, to search ourselves to see what is there. We are called to mortify, to put to death these little seeds of deceit and malice and envy and anger and sexual impurity in our hearts so that they do not grow up into these horrors. We are called to put on the character of Christ so that we can represent Christ as a body to the world. And the chief way that we mortify sin in our own hearts is to confess our sins. Just before our passage today, he says in verses 11 through 14, take no part and the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that is visible is light. The impulse to hide is human, and it comes from shame. The impulse to hide is human, but it feeds the darkness in our hearts. We must Confess our sins. So Paul says, Awake, O sleeper! Do not be lulled to sleep by the seductiveness of the darkness in our hearts, but rather arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. If we confess our sins, if we expose them to the light, Christ will shine upon us and in us and through us. Confess your sins to one another that you might be liberated from them so that you might awaken from your sleep and so that the light of Christ might shine upon your hearts. I was reminded this week in a conversation with a friend that a good image for sin comes from the movie The NeverEnding Story. Now, if you haven't seen that movie since the 1980s, the great enemy in The NeverEnding Story is a horrible, unseen force that devours everything, and it's called the nothing. The nothing consumes and corrupts and infects everything, and eventually obliterates it until there is nothing left. And what is most powerful to me about the nothing is what it does to the hearts of the characters in this story. Some of the characters see the power of the nothing as irresistible and inevitable, and so seek to ally themselves with it. The wolf Gmork says that the nothing is a despair, destroying this world, and I have been trying to help it. Because people who have no hope are easy to control. And whoever has the control has the power. 
And others see the power of the nothing and they despair before it, like the giant turtle Morla, who declares to the hero of the story, Atreyu, that he won't help because nothing matters. And yet, although the nothing is powerful, its power must be resisted even to the point of death. And the nobility of the characters who resist, like Atreyu, is their courage and willingness to fight. Their unwillingness to let the nothing have their hearts, despite the long odds, despite the apparent victory over everything. Because ultimately, the nothing is not victorious. Ultimately, there is a power more compelling, more indestructible. And so the message of the never-ending story is, fight the nothing. That is fundamentally the lesson that Paul is teaching us throughout the sermon that is Ephesians. Repent and fight this corruption within our hearts. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at the power of no. He goes on to tell us what a life given over to Christ, given over to the life of the Spirit looks like. He says, hey, here's what a life that is filled with hope and not despair can look like. Do you believe it? If you believe it, then practice it. Not only are we to confess the sins in our hearts, but we're to make the best use of time because the days are evil. We need to regulate our thought lives and our activities by intentionally taking on practices that will help us put on the character of Christ rather than the opposite. The concept of a rule of life, which has been the source of personal and communal transformation for billions of Christians throughout its history, emerges from St. Paul's counsel here. The rule of life is a devotional discipline whereon we take, wherein we take on good practices and make them into habits rather than bad practices that lead to bad habits. If the days are evil, St. Paul seems to be telling us, we cannot honor Christ with our lives by accident, by simply conforming to whatever is normal. Because whatever is normal is bound to be depraved if the days are evil. To be a Christian is to do things with your time that are bound to strike those around you as odd. To care for the lowly and the sick and the poor. To pray, to meditate, to worship. Marva Don calls this, the gathering to worship, the gathered assembly is a royal waste of time. You get that? A royal waste of time. Because the world looks at it and says, what are you doing with your Sunday morning? Why would you do that? But it is regal. It is to participate in the very kingship of Christ so that our hearts can be reforged. Don't be foolish and ignorant, Paul says. Study the word of God so you will know what his will is. Don't get drunk. Don't have your senses dulled by anything addictive, any addictive habit so that you make foolish decisions and say stupid things, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do things that are going to fill you with the Spirit rather than the opposite. And worship, address one another in Psalms. And here he means memorize the actual Psalms that have been given to us in the Old Testament. Remember earlier this year, we did a whole series on the Psalms. Go back to that. Memorize the Psalms so that your language of prayer can be shaped and reforged and recast by that language. We become what we adore. If we adore Christ in worship, we will become like him. 
That is what Paul is telling us here. And practice gratitude. Give thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To practice gratitude is to be a people of hope. If we can see what God is doing in the world and in our own lives, we will have hope. We will not be filled with despair. And submit to one another, he says, out of reverence for Christ. Love one another sacrificially. To do these things is to believe in God and to fear him. To give our complete allegiance to him. The revelations that have been made this last week that besmirch the name of Christ are not what Christ has made the church to be. We must repent, we must make amends, and we must do better to proclaim him and represent him clearly. And we can do this. Victory over sin is possible. We have been given the power by his grace to live by the Spirit. Not just the guilt of sin, but the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We can fight its power. We can live by a different story as the community of Christ. But above all, what I want to say to you today is do not let sin have your heart. Do not succumb to its seeming inexorability because where your heart goes, there will go your actions and your habits and your dispositions. Jesus is alive in me and he is alive in you. So awake, O sleepers, and rise from the dead. Let us live by the Spirit so that Jesus may be magnified in us in this assembly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.